We have been stealing the future from our children. Challenges of conservation and combating climate change are connected. Corruption is being created by wildlife crime. Speciesism is very much the same as racism or sexism. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. Peter, it's just you and me this week. As it was previously as well. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm just chuffed that I'm actually back in the studio. Yeah, we spoke about it last time of, of having COVID, but then, you know, that I was out for a, for a couple of weeks through COVID, but then a hangover from COVID sent me sideways. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm completely dumbfounded to the extent at which COVID can actually not just hit you for the period that you are feverish and fluey and all the rest of it, but I mean, I'm going on what now, a month? And yeah. still, still migraines, body aches, um, yeah. fatigue like I've never felt in my life. It's, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, anyway. Look, I mean, it's also sobering that, that you, I mean, you have been vaccinated. And it's just an illustration that vaccination can curb the, the worst of the disease, but it's not a, it's no guarantee that you won't get it and still get it quite severely. Ari Shannon's going to be listening to this episode. She's still filming in Canada, but she's going to be listening to this episode and going, well, the reason why you felt so bad was because we got the vaccine. So <laughs> but anyway, I mean, let's, let's not go down that rabbit hole. But no. um, but yeah, I mean, my sympathies to anyone and everyone who has um, battled with the virus. It's not fun. I mean, that's the, the shittest I've felt possibly ever. Um, I can't remember feeling that bad. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah, people have had it worse so far, be it from me to complain. Um, anyway, we are back and hopefully we'll be able to restore some kind of consistency to our, to our programming. But, um, what it did allow me to do was to release a, uh, and, and quite timelessly as well, I, th I felt release an interview that I did with Sylvia Earl, um, some weeks back, uh, kind of just in time for International Women's Day, which I thought was pretty pretty cool. Um, and chatting to her was was absolutely remarkable because I thought we would end up having a discussion of understanding about how things have gone from being so great in the early phases and stages of her career to the decimation that we're seeing almost at an industrialized level around the world now. And she didn't. She was optimistic. She was at, she said, when when we created these problems, we only knew so little. But what we know now has put us in a position that we can reverse this. Our ability to learn and our ability to, to, to add research and understand, she says, even in the last few years has gone through the roof. So she see, was, I, I, she was yeah, optimistic. I don't, I don't dispute, I don't dispute yeah. that. I think there's a huge reservoir of human ingenuity and knowledge and all of those things, but my problem remains that we can know all this stuff and quite a lot of us can know all this stuff. Mm. And we are led and encouraged by people like Jane Goodall and, and, and Sylvia Earle and many, many others in, in conservation. My point is always that governments don't listen to it. No, they don't care. And if they listen to it, 
They are too scared of the consequences on their um, their voter base to do anything short term mm. or the long term that is going to hit the pockets of their voters. Well, I don't think it's even that. I, th- I think it's the people that are funding their electioneering. Um, well, that's that true. Yes, I, I, I mean, all I, I, I think living living yeah. in the dream that democracy is based on the voters is is quite utopian, and yeah. maybe I'm a little bit cynical, but I fear no, that we've no, strayed but, quite but, far but, from that. Yeah. But just hear me out, because yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, if we, if, if we if we um, hear what what Putin has done, for example, mm. and the way that the 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 West, the so called free world, has reacted. You know, the, the 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 most effective thing they could have done the very next day would close down oil and and gas purchases, mm. but they've been very reluctant to do that because that is going to hurt the electorate. Yes, and the yes. electorate hurts the electorate gets angry and it votes against the people that are in power. Mm-hmm. So you know, the thing is that yes, there are vast um, uh, vested interests in. In fossil fuels in in the West, we know that, and that some of them must be rubbing their hands with glee at all this mm-hmm. goings on because I mean, their shares would have just rocketed. Um, but you know, we've got politicians that are caught in that vice: mm-hmm. electorate opinion and vested interests. Yep, totally. Agree. And so they just don't move. They they're just worried about the next election, the next four years, next five years, and and so we just carry on and. Yeah. Every time we think that we've presented governments with more and better information as to what's going wrong with the world, the natural world, you know, we we forced into this thing where we always say, well, there still is a window of opportunity to do something about it. Mm. But what we're having to do now is more and more in less and less time. Right. And, uh, yeah. and that's the thing that I can't get out of my head is that we're just not moving fast enough on all of these sort of things. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it, so bless Sylvia Earl. You know, I, honestly, mm. I, I think it's wonderful that we have people like her and so many others. And, I mean, you know, even me and I tend, as you know, to sort of hover around pessimism on many things. <laughs> you know, I really I really do try to be positive. Yeah. Um I wish as I as I enter the sort of remaining phase of my life, which I hope will still be quite extended, I get panicky about the fact that we've done so little hmm. in in my lifetime. Yeah. And um I mean, she she does know, allude to that in the interview. You know, she does talk about yeah. the the volume of work that we need to consider. And in that, there were some fascinating points of discussion that that kind of go against the grain of expectation in a lot of these conversations. So we started to speak about young women in conservation. And she goes, yes, that's true. And in many, in, in many areas around the world, uh, Southern Africa included, where women have been radically marginalized, and so there is an equality issue that needs to come through there, but not to the exclusion of young of young boys. That we have to engender a generation with a new culture of of conservation, and mm. we should be very careful not to just focus that on young women. And she was very forthright in her assertions that yes, young women, yes, because there are injustices we need to correct, but it's young people. 
And uh, yeah. one of the most fascinating pieces of the discussion for me was, and you know, my my passion and my proclivity to push and quite defensively for many of the indigenous communities, especially in places like the East Coast of Africa, that where the industrialized fishing has decimated those coastal populations. And that has had a direct impact on subsistence fishermen. Um, and I might be vegan, but I recognize that that is a privileged decision for me to take in the in the context of where and how that you know I live. But many of these communities rely on on ocean proteins as their as their subsistence. Literally, we started talking about these communities, and where I admittedly may have entered the conversation from a place of saying, "Well, they're kind of victims of industrialized fishing," and. There are old traditional ways and means of living that should be considered in these discussions and the defense of these indigenous and First Nation peoples. And she said, does that remove their responsibility to change as we must? She said, every single person on the planet, it does not matter your circumstance, has got a responsibility to interrogate your way of life in relation to what is happening to the planet and where and how you can, you must act. You must improve. She says, that doesn't change for anyone on the planet. No one is excluded from that responsibility. The difference is, is that we get to learn from them, but they also get to learn from us. And so how does this become a globalized discussion? Because everybody has a, has a responsibility to interrogate traditions. Um, and I mean, we're going to talk about that extensively in a moment when we go into uh, trophy hunting, which is not a right. It is at very best an elitist tradition, at the absolute best. And that's not a defense. It's it's just not. I mean, I, I don't want to take. I don't want to sort of replicate and bring too much no, of the, the episode into this because I think it's a. It's a very. It's it's definitely worth listening to it because it's a very subtle point in the conversation, but yeah, it have, really hit a yeah, chord with me. I haven't listened to that podcast yet, but I must do that. You know, again, I would say that I I agree with her. Everybody in the world has to change, and a lot of that has to do with education, but you also need a, a level playing field and the playing field isn't level and the pay playing fields for access to resources will ne never be level True that. until, until, that. The, until yeah. the Western or the developed world, whatever you like to call yeah. it, uh, gets rid of mm. industrial subsidies. I totally agree with that. And, yeah, and I mean, I mean she makes reference to that as well. Yeah. And, and her point was not a, a consistent evaluation of everyone. She did absolutely mm. contextualize it and say that the yeah. expectations are different, but the principle of engagement, I'm kind of paraphrasing her, you know, the expectations yeah. of different people and communities mm. and geographies are of course mm. going to change. But what isn't going to change is the expectation that we all have to interrogate our way of life and to see how we can improve in our relationship mm. with the planet and each other. And I think that that was fundamentally her point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating. And of course, she's just got such a beautiful, gentle, soft eloquence, you know, that I yeah. hear when, when you speak, when Attenborough speaks, when Jane Goodall speaks, I think some, something happens when you've just spent so many decades as you have considering these issues. For me, I call it the urgency of patience. So many of the solutions that the planet so desperately needs is the absolute urgency to act. But a major part of that acting 
is to give agency back to the planet to heal itself. And then we've got to be patient that those investments are going to yield results. Just through the protection of the planet, we are going to create solutions to many of the problems we face. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Anyway, International Women's Day was this week. We celebrated our very own Merlin and Como, who's the first recipient of the Shan Elizabeth Foundation's One Woman's Legacy Scholarship Fund. And she was on BBC yesterday. Her star is rising. And I believe that we shouldn't just celebrate exceptional women like Sylvia and uh, Jane Goodall and the like. But we also need to invest in the next generation of those women. And I truly believe that Merlin is one of them. So... Uh, we're very, very excited to to share more and more of her journey. What's that? I said I, I, I totally agree with you, and um, I think Sylvia Earle would as well, that our generation, my generation, which includes people like her, we have much to consider in the ways that we have, my generation has failed the planet. But if we've done one thing, I think it is to recognize that the the young people of today, not even your generation, but I'm, I'm thinking of my grandchildren's generation, yeah. of, of which Merlin is a part. That is the asset that we have. That is the agent of change. We, we, have, we have almost done what we can do to slow down the process of, of the planet being eroded, its resources mm-hmm. being eroded. And, and now the young people, the Greta Thunbergs of this world, the, the Merlin and Comas of this world, mm. all those, those millions and millions of young people that are fed up with a, a damaged world and want a better world, the challenge is going to be theirs to, to carry forward. Yeah. You know, we, we're saying all these things have to happen in the next 20, 30 years, otherwise we're out of control. Yeah. And, you know, the likes of me and Sylvia and others won't be around towards the end of that period. And therefore, it's it's your generation and those coming after you that are really going to have to pick up the cudgels. And and that is where I absolutely agree with uh, Sylvia Earle and, and her peers, that we have gained so much in knowledge that the children of today are so much better prepared for the challenge of healing the planet than we were uh, 40, 50 years ago, you know, when, when the world was just viewed as a, a limitless resource, you could take what you wanted from it. Yeah. Forever. Dad, I mean, we could talk about, we could talk about people like Sylvia for, for ages. I mean, it was a profound interview and it had quite an impact on me. It was pretty incredible. Um, and I encourage people to listen to it. And it was very much talking about her book as well, uh, which is a collaboration with the National Geographic Society. So all of those links will be in the show notes as well. But on to, and I know this is probably about 10 days old, but I think we do have to talk about it because conservationists tend to talk about things for a week and then we go quiet on stuff. And I want to make sure that we maintain specific dialogues around critical issues and not give sanctuary to those that contradict the ethics that they say they have by allowing silence to get them off the hook. And I worry that that is a repeated thing that tends to happen in South Africa. And so what I'm referring to is that on the 25th of February, the South African government, the Department of Forest, Fisheries and Environment under the minister, Barbara Creasy, has confirmed the quotas for trophy hunting 
um, for 2022. And there were a host of animals in there that, um, and we, you know, when we talk about every life matters and we talk about the principle of sentience, you know, we, are, we are concerned at the killing of any animal for fun. But there were a couple of standouts that I want to just focus our attention on today. One being a radical number of elephant, 150 elephant. There was another amount of, I believe it was uh, 10 leopards and 10 critically endangered black rhino. Needless to say, the world erupted and condemned that decision. And the assertions of what this brings to the country in terms of financial value, which was horribly overstated in itself, that it was okay. And that poaching numbers are down, so therefore it's okay to put rhino, black rhino, critically endangered, not white rhino, black rhino, because that's the big five animal, isn't it? Yeah. You know, on, onto the chopping block. And I cannot get my head around this because we have sat in support of Creasy. I've sat in defense publicly. I have defended her and the high level panel and the process was being created and that was being promoted to give voice to all quarters and to develop what was the submission that went to, to parliament in December last year was ratified and was made public. Sorry. Um, in 2020, should I say over a year later, we still don't have any finality on that policy document. And that policy document was at the majority of the high-level panel. It was adopted under majority that those two critical components, intensive breeding of rhino and captive lion breeding, should be unbundled. And the world celebrated. And the world acknowledged this would be a process and we would get behind the minister and her one welfare policy. And so we did. We did. Art of conservation. I defended the minister to the nth degree against many people who were cynical going, no, nah, this is just smoke and mirrors. This isn't going to last. This doesn't mean anything. It's just kicking the can down the road. And there were a couple of commentators that said, and you will find out when she releases the quotas for trophy hunting. And then we will see if One Welfare has come into it as a principle or not. I was like, no, come on, guys. This is the best movement we've seen out of the ministry in years. Good people, really strong people behind the high-level panel, the way it was starting to work, the way engagement was starting to happen. I didn't agree with all of the findings, but I had to get behind the process because for the first time it felt engaged, it felt transparent, it felt authentic, and so we got behind it and we defended. And I feel let down. I cannot get my head around it. I cannot. I understand the numbers. I understand the conservation. I understand the rationale behind elephant as an example. I get it. Intellectually, I get it. But when there is near zero science to support the allocation of leopard and critically endangered black rhino, how is it possible that under majority, under a, a clear and transparent public process, we still can't get shit done. But if you want to kill it for fun, oh man, we can turn that on in oh immediately. Done. No problem. There you go. They're the quotas. Go for it. And of course, yeah. the entire world was just, my phone lit up. And yes, there were a lot of phone calls from South Africa about it. Washington, D.C., New York. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver, Colorado, 
people lost their shit. And so the reputational damage to South Africa as a result of this undermines every inch of conservation value and has just made the jobs of everyone, including your very own sandparks, Creasy, that much harder. You've opened up the back door. We saw 2010 to 2014, we saw the pseudo hunts. We know the impact of how manipulated and corrupted trophy hunting structures can be and how dangerous they can be to anti-poaching efforts. And yet here we go. Here we go. Have them. And completely overstating the financial value. Completely overstating it. I do not understand. Under the banner of, well, we're poaching less rhino. So that's fine. I mean, let me hand it to you because I'm, I'm kind of soapboxing here. I, I, I just don't know what to do anymore. Look, it's a different world. What to do is to carry on doing what we're doing and trying to get laws changed because that's that's really what the, the it's all about at the in the end. Because uh, you know, Creasy would say, and correctly, that she is acting quite within the terms of of CITES, an international treaty that go- governs the, the 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 trade in endangered species. I'm not. I'm not. I see you on the on the video shaking your head. <laughs> no, no, it's not at you. I, I I know where you're going. I know. The, the, I, I get the, it. I get the, it. The, the point I'm 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 trying to make hmm. is that in her terms, she's not doing anything that is illegal. So let's say that. And, and if we, we don't like what the law says, then it is up to people like us to get that law changed. And, and we have to lobby as hard as we can to make that happen. If we don't like trophy hunting, which we don't, we've got to find the alternatives. But you see, so she, she justifies the trophy hunting of those three species on three main grounds. She says it's sustainable because you you could argue. I mean, we we're not saying that trophy hunting is sustainable, but if you take one or two or three or four or maybe even ten black rhinos, and if that was the only cause of death amongst black rhinos, you know, the black rhino population wouldn't notice that. It you know it would yeah. it would carry on. Yeah, we'd lose a bit of genetic uh, input, but be that as it may. In the sense of that kind of sustainability, she's right. As I said, it's legally in line with international treaties and South African law, which has to be in line with those treaties anyway, if you're a member of that, that treaty. And her, her coup de grace, you know, it's revenue generating with particular reference for poor rural communities. Now, we know that's bullshit, mm. but that's how, that's how it has been sold. It's hard so, being sold to know, her, and this is my worry. No, but but it's also being sold to the to, it's also being sold to the rest of South Africa. Sure, and there are many people that would look at that 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 um, statement and say, well, you know, I don't know what all the fuss is about. That doesn't sound too bad to me. Those aren't people that know what we know. They aren't people that care that much about animals. They would just see it for what it is. You know, a statement that says oh, it's okay by the law, it's okay by the rules of sustainability, and it's 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 going to benefit poor people. So, so Creasy has justified it on those three grounds. It is sustainable in in terms of that it's not going to harm the the the, the overall pool of of animals. It's legally in line with national treaties and South African law. 
and it's revenue generating with particular importance for poor rural communities. Now, we know that that's, that's, that's bullshit. We know that so little filters down from the, the sale of those animals to be killed, that, that filters down to, actually does filter down to rural communities. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and there is such an easy rationale when you don't include ethics or when you don't include ancillary industries like tourism, which is affected. Within days of this, there was a report from Bloodlines that said the impact of trophy hunting and what it means to the bottom line as a business of South Africa. And basically, it costs more than it gives, is the bottom line from that statement. There, there's so many holes in it that I'm just not buying that. Dad. As much as I intellectually understand what you're saying and intellectually I get it, I don't agree with it. And, and here's why. Because there is no clear evidence. We know that the vast majority of those hunts are more than likely going to take place in associated private nature reserves, APNR on the western boundary of Kruger with fences down. And the argument is, is that there's only going to be the bulls or the males over a certain age. One, how do you identify the individual? Two, surely we've got to commit to what is in uh, South Africa's constitution that says that the government and the South African National Parks Board has a responsibility to preserve life for future generations. I can't remember the exact wording, but these wild animals that are being set up for trophy hunting, there is no assertion on the, on the sourcing of those animals and what that does to this to the social structures to ecological uh, benchmark within those environments nothing there's no mention of that we know that the data on leopard populations is incredibly light so the foundation arguments of saying this is what we should this is what we're doing because it's fine because CITES says it's fine CITES is a trade organization they're there to govern trade they're not there to say you should or you shouldn't. That's IUCN's job. And so IUCN comes along and goes, okay, well, these are critically endangered. And clearly it doesn't mean shit because IUCN says black rhino are critically endangered. They're Appendix 1, I believe. But it's fine to hunt them because CITES says so. So again, we get back to this place of going, just because we say that it is legally okay doesn't mean it is ecologically sustainable, that it is ethically astute, or it is indeed economically viable when you don't consider the impact on other industries if you're concerned about what it means to South Africa in terms of job creation, etc. I'll also assert that the minister also made such a clear statement, and I got behind this above anything and everything else that she spoke about, because it's what we believe as an organization as well is that there needs to be transformation within all sectors that relate to the conservation economy, photo tourism, hunting, etc. This is a sector, trophy hunting, that is notoriously male and pale, has near zero authentic transformational value, economic, racial, gender. It offers near nothing to the transformational value that she said was a cornerstone of her one welfare policy moving forward. It's tipping your cap to a bunch of elitists that at the very best are paying people minimum wage, and that's its employment value. And to the assertion that, that it was the entire biodiversity economy that was affected by this decision is rubbish. That's 400 plus thousand people working in that sector in South Africa. Trophy hunting has been widely stated at what, 17,000, most of which are part-time workers, 
or laborers that already live on those farms and are doing other jobs and just happen to be seconded into the trophy hunting activities. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. The science isn't there. And we've just sent another message to the world saying, hey, you know what? Our rhinos, we're open for business. You can kill him. We're not really that serious about keeping them alive. Yeah. I'm not saying that that is accurate. I'm just saying that this is the perception. This mm -hmm. is what organizations like ours and countless others you know, are, are coming up against. So the point is, even yeah. if you agree with it, it's still not based on on any evaluated national documentation. And that that in itself is a point of concern. I don't know. Well, it is. No, I mean, it's, you know, okay. So I, I think it, it's, it's vastly ingenuous to say that, you know, black rhinos are in a state of recovery. Yes, yes, they are in the sense that they have been increasing steadily over the last couple of decades. But you cannot argue that, you can't, cannot argue against the fact that at the beginning of the last century, there were what something close to 750,000, possibly even a million black rhinos in Africa. Right. By the 1960s and early 70s, we had reduced that to about 65,000, I think is a rough figure. And then in the next 30 years, 1994-95, we had reduced the black rhinos to little more than 2,450, I think the figure was, in all of Africa. So we had lost 98% of the rhino population that we had in the 1960s by the 1995. And yes, that was a stopping point. It bottomed out there. And since then, despite the, the, the poaching that has gone on with the, the black rhino, their numbers have increased and now they sit at something like 5,600. But that that is hardly a buffer to say, okay, we're over the we're over the hump, guys. We can do with these animals what we like. So you know, I completely disagree with her there. Yeah. The, the and another another thing, and this relates particularly to the to the leopards. So before you go in there, just onto the leopards, if I can just make one comment about about the black rhino there, is that the assertion that the that the continental population is in a, in a state of recovery, which is as a Pan-African concept or statement is indeed accurate, but she's not making decisions about Africa's population of black rhino. No, 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 she's I'm making decisions. No, no, I'm no. not taking you on. I'm, I'm adding to it yeah. by saying her assertion of saying, well, the, the continent-wide, the black rhino population is in a state of stability or, or marginal recovery might very well be accurate. But in South Africa, in her very own Kruger National Park, 10 years, 50% down, black rhino population. So you can't make these assertions in terms of what happens in South Africa based on continent-wide numbers. And you can't make that assertion when we are a hotbed for the poaching crisis. And I, I, you know, the very few poachers that I've chatted to, they don't care whether it's a white rhino or a black rhino. They come in and take out a rhino. So to suggest that because black rhino are in a, in a point of stability in whatever measure you'd choose to make that statement, does that remove the threat from black rhinos simply because? Yeah, it, of course it doesn't. So, yeah. No, I, look, Sorry, leopards. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's, let's carry on because, I, you know, uh, what's happening with the black rhinos 
um, is more than matched with what's happening with the white rhinos. And I've just been looking at the all the graphs around rhino populations and poaching that we we put out and and updating them where I can. And you know, I looked back at the white rhino figures. You know, if you look at that graph, which until about 2011 was a was a beautiful hockey stick. Mm. I mean, you know, it started from 20 or so white rhinos left in the entire world. Um, I'm talking about the, the the southern white rhinos now. Mm-hmm. Few few animals living in the Bumfalozi uh, area of of, of KwaZulu Natal. You know that that grew to about a thousand at the time that the Dr. Ian Player took over mm-hmm. with his Operation Rhino and started moving so-called excess rhinos into areas where they had been and and new places are in South Africa and further afield. And and that progress, that process was immensely successful. And so around about 2011, we peaked at just over 21,000 white rhinos. Now, wow, what a success story that was. Mm. And then we hit the poaching. And for, for a number of years, people were saying, oh, well, you know, the, the poaching's happened, but our rhino numbers are still sort of stable and maybe tapering off a little bit and, you know, all those sort of arguments saying it, the, the world wasn't of, of white rhinos wasn't as bad, perhaps, as we thought it was, even despite the, the, the hunting, I mean, the poaching. Yeah. And, I, you know, looking at it just over the last couple of days, the, the latest thinking, and we discussed it in a previous program, what are we looking at in terms of white rhinos today? Do we looking at certainly no more than 12,000, and most people are saying closer to 10,000? Mm. Is that the position today? Yeah. So that's the fall-off. That's a fall-off of 10,000 rhinos yeah. in, in those few years. In less than a decade, we've lost them again. So to think back to the black rhino and to think that 5,600 is a good number and we can start playing games with them is completely and utterly wrong. We don't even know, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't even know when the, the rhino uh, poaching impact on white rhinos, particularly in the Kruger Park, is slowing, if it will slow, or it's just going to end up in a, a single line going straight the way down to the point that there are no more in Kruger, at least. Yeah, We don't know that yet. We have no comfort in knowing that that's, that would be wrong. Yeah, and, and we don't know that, and we don't have comfort in that, because yeah. there has been a stranglehold on information coming out, and when the information does come out, it contradicts itself. Absolutely. No, you, you, you're, you're quite right. And one point I'd like to make before yeah. I forget to make it, because I think it is um, it is important, and uh, Paul Fun, Dr. Paul Funston of, of yes. um, uh, Blind Conservation made mention of it. I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I think I'm you know uh, let me see if I can find what he said. Um, yeah, quite a bit of money has been invested, for example, in understanding leopard populations. That is for sure. And in some respects, we have got a, a, a decent idea of leopard numbers. But the point, the point that he makes is that as distasteful as we find the, the trophy hunting of, of, of leopards and other species, the fact with the leopards particularly, 
um, we face it almost as sort of it's it's talking about the trophy hunting is a diversion from the real issues. That's what I'm trying to say, mm. because the real issue behind leopard skins, which we're not talking about, is that the leopard skins are the problem. Leopards are being poached in quantities yep. for the export of their 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 skins and and possibly other body parts as well. Into, into that same big cat yep. market that there is for such things. So, you know, when so what, what has happened over the last few weeks, all of us with justifiable anger have been focusing on trophy hunting. And then why we focus on trophy hunting and, and express our righteous indignation and rage, half the other world that doesn't agree with us is just saying, look at that bunch of, of emotional tree huggers going on again about this sort of thing. And of course, as Minister Creasy has said, this is all perfectly sustainable. It's in line with law. It's all those sort of things. So, you know, what are these people about? So in, in a sense, the whole issue is hijacked. And so now look, we suddenly headlocked again, talking about trophy hunting. Mm. And we all know trophy hunting's dying. You know, it really is. You've just got to look at the figures coming from Tanzania and from, from South Africa, and people will say, oh, that's because of COVID, et cetera. Mm. No. Even in the United States, the demand for hunting licenses is dropping exponentially. People no longer have a stomach for it. Yeah. That is clear. And, and that is going back to the younger generation, particularly, they have no stomach for it. Mm -hmm. And so it is a dying thing. And that leads me to the next point. And that is to say that if it is dying, why are we investing so much time and effort in defending it now when we should really be thinking of those alternative strategies for making a real contribution in, in conservation, ways in which people living next to parks are not forced into making a little pittance out of, of, of helping, you know, wealthy white hunters do their, their stuff. We, we're looking at projects that really, really help to develop those people. Totally and that's agree. what we need to do. I totally and agree with how, you on that. How we do that, you know, I know we talk a lot about it. Mm. And the time has come for people like us to really put our heads down. Yeah. Really yeah. put them together and say, right, come on, let's the debate now is no longer about hunting. Yes, we can we can we can damn it where we see it, but let's not invest too much in it because the real issue is something different. Yeah, I, I do yeah. agree with you in, in many instances. I don't think we should ignore it altogether because I would much rather kill it with a scalpel than with a blunt spoon, is that if we can accelerate its demise, not to the exclusion of the discussions that are the most relevant, which are whether we take it away from a legislative perspective or whether it takes itself away from a changing consumer dynamic, which you've alluded to you know, in the next generation, not having a, a, a stomach for it. Either way, we are facing that. Now, are we going to be proactive in saying, well, when that happens, how have we positioned African people to be able to take economic sanctuary in a new model? And a new model yeah. that includes them, that is transformational. So I agree with you on that. The other thing that I will assert is that trophy hunters are not conservationists. And yes, bring it on if you want to disagree with me. And the reason why I say that is that every single debate I've had on this subject with a trophy hunter says, if we weren't there, the land would fall fallow. So basically what you're saying is you're only there to hunt. 
You're only there to shoot animals for fun. Because if you can't shoot animals for fun, you're not going to be there. That's what I'm hearing. So what are you motivated by? You are motivated by the experience of ending something's life. And if we want to talk emotion, then let's be careful. Because what we've said in this entire podcast is where is the evidence and the science to back up these quotas? Because the economic evidence, the biological, ecological evidence is simply not there. And I'll read a couple of other quotes from HSI. You've referred to Paul Funston, who's one of the most celebrated in this space that the numbers are simply not there. So all we've got in this argument is the post-rationalization of the emotional gratification you get from ending something's life. So we've got to be very careful over slandering people for being emotional because this entire argument is centered around your defense for getting your jollies off from killing something. We're trying to say, where is the evidence that you are using, the scientific evidence, the economic evidence, the socioeconomic evidence that underpins these decisions to go and have fun killing animals? I'm not buying mm. that, oh, you know, the emotional you know, bunny hug is bullshit. Get over yourselves. It's a weak argument. No one's falling for it anymore. So some of the ways that we, we can continue the pressure on the trophy hunting industry and um, I was discussing this with, with Shannon over a WhatsApp conversation last week, because in, in my previous editorial, I made mention of the fact that, uh, you know, what we need from these hunts, you know, which for all our protestation are quite likely to go ahead. But let's yeah. presume that they do. And once they've done, what we have to demand is a proper audited reckoning of what happened, what was paid for the license, what went to the trophy outfitter that, that facilitated the thing, what was spent on airfares, what was spent in hotel and and, and lodge fees and whatnot, mm -hmm. what portion of that filtered down into employment and what that employment was and how much did those people get? And is it how much did in fact yeah, how much did the government get for those licenses? Mm -hmm. And yes, please, we would like to know into which section of which coffer that went mm -hmm. and what it is going to be spent on, because I don't trust anything out of our government anymore. Right from the top to the bottom, I think they're inept, incompetent, and in many cases downright corrupt. Mm -hmm. So we can't trust that to an internal audit of the government. It has to be an outside audit. And only then will we know, and can we settle this thing once and for all in terms of what so-called poor people get from this wonderful, munificent trophy hunting industry. Mm. And I'm almost prepared to swear that it will be close to bugger all. Yeah. And, yeah. that, that, and that is it. So I think that is a big challenge for people like us mm. is to put that pressure on and to, and to make sure yeah. that we have a proper audited academic investigation mm. of how this money is, is, is accounted for. I totally agree. I, I would also say let's take it a step further and try and convene that. Let's get Michael Sassrolfs, let's get Ross Harvey, let's get these guys that are otherwise polarized to say, you are both extremely intelligent, capable people, evaluate. 
take take a view on this. Take a take an audit of it, yeah. because it's be, it's increasing's be best interest to do this. Because if her yeah. assertion is indeed correct, then yeah. people like you and I have to shut up in our argument of saying, well, it's not contributing, it's not doing A, B, and C. Then we only left with the ethical or the the, the moral conundrum of is it right to kill an animal? Then we back to the bunny hugger stuff. But until then, it's in her interest to showcase this. If it is such a great contributor to conservation and to job creation, then you're, it shouldn't be just about defending this action. You should want to see this grow if it's that powerful, surely. So let's see the evidence and we can get behind it as a country. But we and I know that that is unlikely to happen. One, unlikely to happen for them to commission it and two, unlikely to happen because we know that the numbers are not going to corroborate the intentions. The one other thing, you know, you mentioned the research side of it, and I want to push this out there. And there are some incredible scientists out there that I don't agree with. I can't disagree with their science. I can't disagree with their research methodologies. They are far more competent and capable than I. You know, and in this instance, I refer to a lot of the crew from from Wild Crew, Amy Dickman, uh, Dr. Amy Dickman, uh, who has been appallingly treated in the public press in her defense of certain consumptive uses of wildlife. I don't agree with the consumptive use. Anybody that's listened to this podcast for more than three minutes knows that. But the ad hominem attacks on people like Dr. Amy Dickman are disgusting. What I will say is that I challenge, and this is a direct challenge, is that we often find ourselves, or scientists, in an either-or so the scientific statement comes out and says trophy hunting can or in very rare instances does contribute successfully to conservation, sustainable conservation practices. That may very well be true. But what I would like to see from the scientists is to say, okay, if you're looking at the economics of hunting and that's its value proposition – then we should be doing comparative studies to other methodologies of conservation, community engagement, community um, programs, direct comparisons to photo safaris, etc. If we took the evaluation on that level, then we could see maybe it does contribute, but does it contribute as much as? And what are the differences in those different strategies? And if we've got one that is incredibly valuable, can we identify the shortcomings in that strategy? So as a community, we can try and plug those and accelerate the value of the right solution, not just coming out as a defense of consumptive use and saying, well, it does contribute, but relative to what, how much, are there other options that are better than that? And should we get behind those? How do we get behind those in a scientific, sustainable way? I often think it's not science that has an answer. I think it's, I think it's the, the press. Now, I'm a huge defender of press freedom and expression and all those of things. And uh, I think access to the truth, honest opinion and debate and the right to question, choose, criticise, those are the most precious of all freedoms. You, you see, what, what I think tends to happen is that someone like Amy will write an article, it'll be published in a scientific journal, and then because it, it seems to underlie a support for trophy hunting, the trophy and hunting industry will immediately jump on that and say, yes, you see, we told you so. Mm. This comes now from a scientist and they're saying it's okay to hunt, mm. that it's a legitimate part of the tool, blah, 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 blah. 
The press picks up on it and says, wow, this is a lovely, juicy statement, and it's definitely going to get readers going. Yeah, so you'll quote something fire. out of you quote something out of context. And then the next thing is that you've got a public uh, social media fight going on. And I can almost guarantee that 99% of the people that are in that fight have not even read the article properly. And so the whole thing gets uh, subverted. And this is what carries on all the time. And, you know, our side of the, the argument is, is, is not clean by any manner of means. I look for things when I see, oh, there's a new paper on hunting, and I immediately look to see what's in there. And I say, is there anything there that supports my worldview on this? Uh, That's what I want to find. I want to find support for the way I'm thinking, uh, you know. And and so you immediately get drawn into this debate, this polarized debate. Uh, and that's what we have in so many instances, in so many aspects of our, our culture and our lives today, is that the moment something controversial is put out into the world, you get a completely polarized view. Uh, and so you're either for or you're against and if you're for and against, you cannot have a, a decent conversation about it. You just have to hurl insults at one another. And that I find terribly, terribly disappointing. And I think that that's something that we have to try and get over and to say, right, we've seen this paper. And I'm a bit disappointed that that was their finding. You know, I, you know, I can't deny that. Mm. I'm just speaking completely hypothetically. Yeah. You know, I, I can't deny that. But what am I doing then to stimulate? Because that's what science is about. Science isn't about publishing a paper and saying, this is what we found. Mm. Science is about those scientists saying, this is what we found. And we are now challenging the rest of the scientific world to, to repeat our, our methodology and to see whether they agree with what we've done or whether they come up with something different. And that's how science progresses. Totally. It's not from making a statement that is suddenly written into into a universal law by social media experts. I, I totally that's agree. The validation sciences are, are, are yeah. sorely lacking. What's yeah. your position on this? Because it's something that I think plays a major role in, in <clears> the science. Oh, I've got to tread very, very carefully here. But we know that there are some extraordinary bastions of education, predominantly out of South Africa and the UK, that have predetermined positions of consumptive use. So we know that there is a position that Stellenbosch University, through Brian Child and, and, and co, have built the African Wildlife Economy Institute, which is an institute set up for the consumptive use and the trade of wildlife. The wildlife economy, not the biodiversity economy, not the conservation economy. So a lot of the scientists that we are reading making these assertions to the value of trophy hunting, when do we, do, is it even right to start? Do we just accept the objectivity of their research is right? When they are coming from organizations that have been funded or have been funded to talk to this very subject. It's very difficult to ascertain whether the objectivity of a lot of these pro-trophy hunting papers that are coming out from organizations that already have a, a position that consumptive use is okay, 
the education systems themselves are polarizing, is my opinion, because we, we're starting to get into a space where I know that if Wild Crew and Dr. Dickman has taken over at Wild Crew, I believe, and I think that that's really interesting because I want to see where she goes on this, and I would love to ask her this very question, is when everybody knows that you are pro-sustainable use, the objectivity in defending it is tainted because you're not coming at it to research something with a blank canvas. You've got a predetermined position. And I know that skirts very, very close to questioning the the scientists themselves. And and please don't take the bait on that one because that's not where I'm going. I'm, I'm talking about an institutional or an organizational level that is funding or that is promoting this research. How how do we how do we find comfort in that objectivity? Because I can't anymore and I just feel more polarization. Oh look, I, I think you know, in any era any any time in our developments and in science, there are views that come to the fore. So I remember a time when conservation was almost entirely driven off the the back of key species like pandas and whales and elephants and so on. Then that became sort of bit passe. And, and the thing was the care of ecosystems, etc. It was all about the environment, not the individual animal. And, you know, in the 70s, the notion of sustainability, I think that we allowed ourselves to be hoodwinked um, because if we can manage our, ourselves sustainably in the world, well, that would be wonderful, but we never have been able to do it and we're not proving that we are going to be able to do it. Getting back to your earlier discussion about Sylvia Earle, etc., but sustainability is the key word that has been taken on board by so many people in science, in economics, you know, in almost every endeavor. Is it sustainable? How do we measure sustainability? And if we can and we can show that something is sustainable, why not do it to it because it makes money and money generates um, funding for all sorts of other things besides, including poor people? So, you know, you've got something that is motivated by almost the, I almost think of it as, as the dogma of, of uh, sustainability, because it, in the minds of some, it, is, it almost um, rises to a point of religious uh, importance. And I know that I'll get a lot of flack back for that as well. <laughs> so, yes, I think, I think that certain, certain institutions and certain people believe intensely that it is possible for us to run the world sustainably and that we can run the world sustainably within the context of current institutions as we have them. And that's everything from the, the, the big NGOs and to the way we manage the world, things like the International Monetary Fund, the way the, the United Nations is run, which has shown itself yet again in the Russian-Ukrainian thing to be totally inadequate in terms of dealing with international crisis. It doesn't have the guts because of the way it's constituted. And that, that, that's, the, that's the problem, that we are all trying to solve problems within the context, context of existing institutions and, and thinking and, and paradigms. Mm. And if we are to, to grow as a species, 
we've got to start looking outside of those things. So, yes, I, I make no comment. I mean, I respect every scientist mm, absolutely. that absolutely. tries to do tries to do his or her job yeah. properly, and that's it, to examine the the natural world and to tell us more and more about it. That knowledge that Sylvia Earle was talking about yes. that comes from scientists. Yeah, 100%. you know, almost a hundred percent it comes from scientists. And thank you to all of them. Mm. But yes, I think we we in this in the movement of conservation, we are driven by different ideologies, and that's where the problem arises. And those ideologies become mutually exclusive. So if you're in that sustainability camp, you cannot argue outside of it because then you weaken your ideology, and that's the thing that you're trying to to uphold. It's kind of my it's point only when that is mm-hmm. it's only when that is either proved right or wrong. That you start moving on into into another system. So I, I, I personally believe that we're in for an extraordinarily interesting time, because I think there there, there are signs that the the institutions that we accept as absolute today are not fulfilling their purpose, and therefore they will in time, in whatever way, they will they will crumble. Mm, I agree. Until we find things that are more that that have greater depth of social justice within them. Mm. And that's what we so desperately need in, in this world. What is just? Yeah. Not just just for a few people, but just for everybody. What I want to close on is just a, a couple of statements and going back to, to Audrey Delsink and uh, Humane Society International Africa. She made the, the statement on behalf of Humane Society. She said, we are terribly disappointed that the DFFE is failing in its duty to protect our threatened and endangered wildlife species. It is unacceptable that we allow people to hunt endangered and critically endangered animals for the purpose of collecting their remains as trophies. The claim that trophy hunting contributes to conservation cannot be justified in light of the the evidence demonstrating that one-third of South Africa's hunting trophies are captive-bred animals and most are non-native or species not subject to science based population management. Uh, Some telling words there. But just in closing, the reports issued within days of Minister Creasy's statement had a couple of key findings. And I just want to put some context to as much as we say it is is an industry in decline. But here are some crazy numbers for you. I won't go through all of them. There's about six or seven that are worth pointing out. And First one is South Africa is the second largest exporter of trophies of CITES listed species globally, exporting 16% of the global total of of hunting trophies, which equates to 4,204 trophies on average per year. South Africa is the biggest exporter of CITES listed species in Africa. South Africa exported 50% more trophies than Africa's second largest exporter, which is Namibia. 83% of trophies exported are captive bred animals or non-native species. The most common captive source species exported from South Africa over the period was the African lion, comprising 58% of the total number of captive source trophies exported. Most, 90% trophies exported from South Africa originated in South Africa. 68% of trophies exported from South Africa were from wild animals, while 32 were from captive. 
1,337 African elephant trophies were exported during 2014 to 2018, and 47% went to the US. 4,176 African lion trophies were exported during 2014 to 2018, and 94 were captive sourced. 52% went to the United States. 574 African lion trophies were exported during 2014 to 2018, 53% went to the States. Obviously, the US is the number one importing country of trophies out of South Africa at 54%, and then it's Spain at five, Russia at four, Denmark at three, Canada at three, Mexico at two, Germany at two, and so it carries on and cascades down to the bottom. But I want to like put some of that in perspective, is that it is a fraction, a fraction of the total tourism number and a fraction of the total amount that is allocated to conservation in terms of of dollar value. And I'm not talking about the cost of the hunt, I'm talking about authentic money that goes back into the protection of wild animals in South Africa. All of this, if, if we've got such incredible market share within the trophy hunting landscape, if we dominate it globally to, to these kinds of levels, and it is still not a viable reason to suggest that we shouldn't be looking at alternatives as soon as possible because its value is going to get less, not more. And yet we've got the lion's share, no pun intended, of its value coming in. That's an indictment on the on the trophy hunting industry in itself, is that if South Africa is so dominant, but the amount that you're bringing in is relatively so small to other economic values, we should be looking at it in the context of that. We should be taking on board the research of bloodlines and others, the South African uh, Tourism Standards Authority that is behind the abolishment of captive lion breeding and the like is because the damage to the country in terms of reputation and tourism exceeds the value of this industry. Anyway, um, we d- we actually didn't really talk about much else today, did we? No. But I felt it was important to take a big bite out of this one because I, I don't want the subject to go away. And no, no, Minister, Creasy, away. Minister Creasy, yeah. if you do listen to this, this is not about being divisive. This is not about pulling people apart and creating more difficulty in your job. You have got, I don't care that there were more submissions to protect the the quotas and the use of wildlife than they were not. Ethics and morality are not a majority rule. We've got to decide whether, whether we're going to carry on trying to put our morality on a balance sheet or whether we're going to stand as a leader in the world in terms of how we can protect our biodiversity for authentic transformational value. We don't believe that this decision does justice to the commitment you made to us. We still are in support of you moving in that direction, and we will do everything we can to help you move in that direction. But I don't believe that this is serving your commitment or the needs of what we need to see. Anyway, um, I, I thank you, everyone who's who's listening, and please share with us your your comments and your questions. I know that this is a subject that has uh, certainly had my phone light up daily, and um, we'll talk more about this as as the story unfolds. Please sign up to our newsletter, artofconservation.com. Um, please follow us on social media, and the biggest thing you can do, as ever, is to review us and rate us wherever you're getting your podcasts. That is the 
the currency that keeps the lights on, so to speak, and really helps us sustain our position as the number one nature-based podcast out of Africa at the moment. Uh, we rank number one in over seven countries, and we rank in the top 25 in over 30 countries. And that's because of you as our, our listeners. So our deepest gratitude to you all. Please keep it coming. Uh, we want to make sure that the podcast has a lasting and positive impact and isn't just an angry commentator in the corner. So help us get there. Thank you so much, and we'll chat again next week. Take care. Bye. We must rethink our relationship with wildlife, the environment, and each other. Join us as we uncover the innovative, unifying, and urgent solutions we need to protect the planet from ourselves. This is the art of conservation. 